This morning, I get the honor of introducing a friend of mine to you for our storyteller. Uh, his name is Braden Bilby, and uh, we actually played peewee football together in the seventh grade, along with uh, Don Strom's son, Jake. And uh, we, we made it all the way to state, but we didn't quite make it into the championship realm. But uh, Braden obviously went on to do much bigger and greater things in the athletic world than me. Once you see him, you'll understand why. Um, and, uh, you know, he actually went on to play professional basketball, and he's a father of Torin and, 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 and uh, husband to Elisa. And, you know, I was trying to figure out a way to introduce him, so I thought this might be the best way that he's used to being introduced, if we could do that. And uh, coming in at 230 pounds, 6 foot 11, Braden Bobby! Thanks, Jeff. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've uh, gone through that. Thank you. <laughs> I think I need more uh, syrup on here. My notes keep sliding off. <laughs> so, as Joe said, I'm Braden Bilby. Um, I want to give a little context. I grew up on Mercer Island, like Joe said. But my family was not religious. Uh, we didn't go to church. Um, we never really talked about faith. Uh, if I'm being honest, somewhere along the lines, I developed some preconceived notions um, and biases against religion in general. And uh, in 2009, I met my wife, Elisa, and I immediately knew I was in trouble. She's, <laughs> she's uh, from a big Irish Catholic family in Boston, and she's a bit of an alpha personality. So I knew she wasn't gonna let me off easy. And for the first few years we dated, she uh, would occasionally succeed in dragging me to mass, although it wasn't my cup of tea, and uh, it was always kind of a source of tension in our relationship. But during our premarital counseling um, in 2013, uh, we made a decision together, um, an important compromise. She would consider other denominations and I would keep an open mind. And so, at this time, we have been living a few blocks away, uh, just up the road here, next to Jeff and Robin Rosenquist. Um, we are becoming good friends with them, and uh, I was pretty shocked to find out that they were Christians. <laughs> Seriously. I, I, uh, <laughs> I actually didn't mean that as a joke. I had known Christians before, um, but up until that point, I had never really connected with someone who um, was religious, but also someone that I wanted to emulate. I'd never really had a positive role model, so to speak. Um, and so, because of Jeff and Robin, we decided to try Evergreen. That was a little over four years ago. Um, and I'll be the first to say I never imagined I would go to this church, uh, let alone grow to love it. And so, uh, I should disclose, I'm not yet a Christian. I'm still on my faith journey. Um, Mine is probably too slow if you ask my wife, but everyone has their own journey, so I'm working on it. <laughs> Anyways, my life was going according to my plan. Um, I had a job I loved, amazing wife, beautiful baby boy. Everything was up and to the right, as Peter would say. Um, in June of last year, I was at a routine dentist appointment when the dental hygienist noticed a lump in my mouth. I was initially misdiagnosed, um, had surgery. It was told it was just a... Uh, infected salivary gland. Um, 
But it turned out after surgery, uh, I had stage 3B salivary gland cancer. And uh, I was in shock. I had absolutely no symptoms. I had no sense that something could be so wrong. Um, it was not part of my plan, obviously. Uh, the weeks and months that followed are still a blur, and I'm not sure that I'll ever be able to fully process everything. There's one particular memory I want to share. Um, I was about halfway through my treatments, and I was probably at the point where uh, I shouldn't have been driving myself anymore. I definitely legally shouldn't have been driving myself anymore. But um, I arrived at the hospital 40 minutes before my appointment, and I was in my truck, and I sat paralyzed. Um, I couldn't bring myself to get out. I didn't want to go in. When my doctor initially explained the treatment um, and how hard it would be, I remember telling him something along the lines of, bring it on. It was up in, <laughs> but it was in this moment in my truck that I understood how people can give up. I was broken physically, mentally, emotionally. I'd never been this low. Reflecting on it later, it was a very humbling re realization. Up until this point, my identity had been big, strong, confident, independent, can handle anything, don't need help from anyone. Yet here I was, unable to get out of my truck and go inside for another round of treatment. I think God Torn was born less than a year before my diagnosis, because without thinking about him, I'm not sure I ever would have gotten out of that truck. I was 15 minutes late. I've been doing a lot of thinking lately about that time. The thing that hits home for me from some of the recent sermons is that God doesn't just give you what you can handle. He gives you more than you can handle. He breaks you down and puts together the pieces according to his plan. I don't know exactly what this means for me or my path forward, but it has me thinking and hopeful. As of last week, I am one year in remission. I know my wife would say Jesus got us through the last year, but I'm not quite there yet. What I do know is that this church and the people here helped my family through it, and they represent Jesus, and that means something. So thank you, everyone, for all the love. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of John. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I'll be reading from John chapter 11, 11 through, or 17 through 27, selected verses in the New American Standard Bible. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Braden. I have the, uh, the privilege of introducing our speaker for today. Um, a little bit about him. He, his name's Chris DeVos. He's with an organization called Colossians Forum, which has actually produced the, the uh, curriculum that we're using in a small group that's been going on for, five, or for four weeks now called the Colossian Way. 
And what we're doing is we're actually tackling a really sensitive subject of human sexuality in this group. Uh, and we're, we're kind of leaning into the conflict there. Uh, and it's been really good so far. No one's really gotten in any fistfights yet. Um, but uh, the, the organization does a lot of good work in this area of conflict. If you're in that group, could you stand up just so we could recognize you as being in this group? Holly, Sean, Patricia, Dan. I think we have some that are helping out back there in the, with the kids too. Um, so these are people that you guys can be praying for as we go through this process. Um, it's really a, a church-wide thing we're trying to do with a small group. So, uh, But Chris DeVos here, he comes all the way from Holland, Michigan. <laughs> and uh, he's going to be speaking to us here. And so if you give him a round of applause, it'd be great. Thanks, Joseph. And uh, thanks for not introducing me like Braden. It would have been... It would have been a, a real disappointment to have me come up after such a great, great introduction. And thank you for that story, which um, is maybe worth everything to me today. That was, that was a beautiful and powerful story. So I am Chris DeVos, and I, I, it's right, I do come from Holland, Michigan. I grew up in Michigan, and actually in Grand Rapids, and I noticed a lot of Seahawk jerseys out there. Um, I think this must be Seahawk territory. Um, good thing they're not playing the Lions today. We, we actually now have a team that we can hope a little bit in this year, um, but we've had a lot of disappointment in our football team in Michigan. I'm really glad to be here with you today. It's just wonderful to worship with you, to experience again the blessing of God's people as they gather. And uh, I get an opportunity now after 30 years of being a pastor in local churches to travel to different churches. And it's just wonderful to see the variety of ways that God is gathering people in such great diversity across the country and across the world for the promise that God gives us that wherever we gather in his name, there he will be. That, that, that promise is over and over again fulfilled. So I want to introduce myself a little bit to you. Here's a picture of me on the left when I was in high school. <laughs> I, I don't know why everybody laughs when they see that. It's the same reaction everywhere. That was a picture taken of me after I got my hair cut, actually. <laughs> and uh, the one on the right is of me fairly recently, unable to grow any hair now. So I long for hair. <laughs> I long for hair. That picture on the left, I, I, I wanted to show you because it rep represents a time in my life when I was really searching, although I was also, in many ways, um, deepening my pursuit of Jesus, Jesus' pursuit of me. Because I was reading the Bible, stories of Jesus in the gospel, but I had so many questions about the church and about the Christians I saw. Um, what Braden said earlier, I didn't really know any Christians that seemed to be good role models, um, was true for me to a large extent within the church. I began working three months ago with the Colossian Forum, which is a group that really has arisen out of the need to be more authentic and genuine in the church and in Christian organizations at a time when there are so many complex issues that seem to divide us and actually seem to flush out the very worst 
in us as Christians. This is a time, actually, we believe as an opportunity to grow in our love for one another and to grow in our love for God, to really believe that all things are held together in Christ and to see that happen as we meet together, even in the most difficult conversations about human sexuality or about the relationship of science to faith or about politics, to see those conversations as difficult as they can be in this world as actual opportunities to see the fruit of the Spirit grow, to see Christ hold us together, to see the church really be the church. So we know from the research in, our, in, our, in organizations that study Christianity in America that this category now called nuns, N-O-N-E-S, has been growing on the research and surveys done of American people. The unaffiliated is the fastest growing religious category in all the data. And in 1990, 99% of US, the U.S. was unaffiliated. But now in 2015, that has jumped to 23%. So we live in a time in which younger people especially are detaching from religious institutions, are cynical about all of that. And the research shows that young people are saying the church by and large is overprotective, shallow, claims to have exclusive truth, is anti-science, is simplistic and judgmental about sex, and has no room for doubt or mystery. Research over and over again from the Barna Institute shows this. At the same time, the research is showing that, long, that young people are longing for commitment to be convicted themselves, to be serious, evangelistic in some deeper sense, to be caring and discerning. That kind of community is something young people are longing for. So there's this tension between what they see and what they long for. One writer says that in the midst of all this, we live actually at a very opportune moment, a perfect time for the church to step back, to begin to think about its existence, what it really is supposed to be. Craig Van Gelder writes this in his book, Participating in God's Mission, which is being released actually next year. There's a major opportunity for churches to provide what few spaces or communities in American society are providing. Generative spaces for conversations across lines of social difference. Unlike other organizations, the church can do this in the context of prayer, discernment, and making connections with the story of the gospel. So that's where I'd like to move with you right now to the A story in the gospel of Matthew. A story that's going to pull on that thread from John 11 where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever comes to me and believes in me will not perish but live. I want to tell you this story in a way that it probably would have been told originally by one of the gospel carriers in the early church. For they didn't have Bibles to turn to and read the text. 
there were a few scrolls or parchments that were carried by messengers from small house church to other house church, the best we can tell. And the gospel message was recited. It was memorized. It was taken to heart. So what I want to do, invite you to do is listen in an ancient kind of way to this story from the Gospel of Matthew. And then we'll come back and look at the actual text together. So hear this story from gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. A story told just after Matthew tells us Jesus returns to his home across the lake. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Levi sitting at his tax booth. And he called to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And as Jesus was sitting at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners were sitting with Jesus and his disciples. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus heard this and said to them, Those who are well have no need for a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus, and they said to him, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but you and your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said, The guests of the wedding cannot mourn while the bridegroom is with them, can they? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth to an old cloak, for the patch pulls away from the cloak, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. Otherwise, the skins will burst, the wine will be poured out, and the skins will be destroyed. No, new wine is put into fresh wine skins so that both are preserved. After he had said this, suddenly a leader of the synagogue came and knelt before Jesus and said, My daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him along with his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak, for she said to herself, if only I can touch his cloak, I will be made well. And Jesus turned to her and said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And immediately she was made well. And when Jesus came to the leader of the synagogue's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. And he said to them, go away for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But after they were put outside, Jesus went in and took her by the hand and the girl got up. And the report of this was sent throughout the entire district. This is the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. Isn't that a great story? Isn't that a powerful story? This is a story, I believe, that connects with what Jesus says in John 11. I am the resurrection 
and the life. So I want to talk about four threads in this story of Matthew 9. It's Matthew 9, verses 9 through 22, if you want to look at it. And that's the version, uh, that's the account from the New Revised Standard Version. Four threads in this chapter. The thread of suffering, the thread of longing, the thread of resistance, and the thread of mission, the mission of life. First of all, the thread of suffering. Did you hear it in this story? Actually, it starts at the beginning of chapter 9. I skipped over that section where Jesus comes into his hometown and the first thing he sees is a group of people carrying someone who's paralyzed. There, some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. And then in verse 18, while he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader in the, of the synagogue came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died. And after he's leaving to go and attend to that, suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his cloak. Suffering is a thread throughout this story. Human suffering. One of the things that I heard growing up in the church I heard as a message given me to the church is that suffering has no place in the church. I think that's changed now. But largely what as I saw was a church of people well put together. There wasn't any struggles. There weren't any difficulties. There wasn't any public sharing of the suffering that was happening in our community. But the suffering exists there it's so fascinating even in your story, Braden, to hear your journey of struggle with that, the condition that just shouldn't be that way. Life shouldn't be that way. Something's wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And it's easy to hear these reports about how everything's horrible out there, and it is. There are difficulties in Puerto Rico and in Houston, and now another, another hurricane makes its way up into New Orleans. There are events like what's happened in Las Vegas, the suffering in our world that's paraded before our eyes on TV, we know of so well. And offering, often we, we're, we're not able to share the suffering within our own lives. But in the gospel message, suffering has a place. It's not celebrated as if it's a good thing, but it has a place. Even in Jesus' hometown, as he comes home, the first thing he sees is a reminder of the brokenness of our world. It's simply the way things are. I love that about the gospel, that it doesn't shy away from naming reality right in front of us. And another thing that is threads throughout this story is this beautiful thread of longing of human longing and striving. Some people were carrying a paralyzed man, and Jesus is the one who says, sees their faith, their faith in carrying him. This human, human longing to not allow suffering to have the final word, but to give the dignity of some form of life to this man by carrying him around. There's the longing of those who had been rejected, the tax collectors and sinners, in, who in Jesus' day were social outcasts in the Jewish community. They were viewed as those who collaborated with the enemy, 
who aided and abetted the, the Roman Empire in collecting taxes and in giving comfort to the troops. The tax collectors and sinners were kept at a distance, but they longed to be in some kind of fellowship, and they're gathering around Jesus. They're gathering there. When I was in campus ministry, one of the most remarkable things we would do is simply invite people to hang out. There were a couple of students in one of the dorms where we work who would, who would actually just gather in the lobby of the dorm and hang out with people, provide refreshments, just hang out, just be with people because there's a longing for human connection and fellowship, especially for those who feel they're on the outside. There's a longing for life in the midst of excruciating trauma. The leader of the synagogue who comes in and says, my daughter has just died. In our congregation back in Holland in the last six months, we've had two children come down with different forms of brain cancer. One, a girl of nine years old who, who within a year went up and down and, and finally died. Our community has been wrenched by this, has gathered together with this longing for life to come to God and say, our daughter has just died. Lay your hand on her. <coughs> and the longing of this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, if only I can touch the cloak, the, the fringe of his cloak, I will be made well. The longing that represents, doesn't it, that problem that just has refused treatment, that addiction perhaps that has been there in the background for years and years and years and just won't go away, that longing to be made whole. So along with the suffering is that thread of longing that Matthew names for us that was around Jesus. But there's also a sinister kind of thread in this story, and that is the thread of resistance. For in three places throughout this chapter, I, we didn't read the first part, is there's resistance to Jesus. First of all, in the form of the scribes who come to Jesus and object and say, Jesus is blaspheming when he says to the man, the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And then the Pharisees who object to Jesus fellowshipping with the with the tax collectors and sinners, eating with them, sharing the table with them. How could you do this? And, this, and, and then the disciples of John who say, why, why is it that Jesus, his disciples don't fast? Well, we're fasting. I think it's, as I study this and take this passage in over and over, what I see in this resistance is some of myself. I hate to admit it. Those scribes who are experts in the study of the scriptures, who know the scriptures inside and out. They know that you're not supposed to say things like your sins are forgiven unless you're God. Those scribes who use the scriptures to maybe twist things so that they don't have to give up power. And then there's the Pharisees who don't like Jesus connecting with impure people like tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees who represent that tendency in us to want to separate off from what we perceive to be the sinfulness and brokenness of the world, to be pure ourselves. That, I think, 
has been the great temptation of my own denomination to separate itself off from the world, to point the finger, and to be very self-righteous. And then there's the resistance of the disciples of John who say, why don't you fast? We're fasting. And fasting for the disciples of John was a way to bring in the kingdom. It's our religious efforts. To all of this, Jesus patiently responds, affirms his ability to proclaim forgiveness, and says in the midst of this some very powerful things which bring us to focus on Jesus' mission. Jesus says at the beginning, take heart, your sins are forgiven. I have come to call not the righteous but sinners. Jesus says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And in the midst of this, there's this remarkable line in the story. Did you catch it while I was reciting it to you? Where Jesus gets up and follows. How many of you thought about that when I said, and he, Jesus got up and followed him? Raise your hand if you thought, hey, that's weird. Good for you. That is incredibly weird. It's the only time in all of the Gospels that Jesus gets up and follows somebody else. It's no, no other place. And it's exactly the same phrase used to describe what Matthew did, Levi did, when he got up and followed Jesus. Same wording. Isn't it remarkable? That when the synagogue leader bows down and says, help me, my daughter's just died, Jesus gets up and follows him and moves. Why is that? Well, it's because Jesus is relentlessly moving to bring life where there's death, to bring forgiveness where there's sin, to bring health where there's faith. Jesus brings hope to the hopeless. Jesus relentlessly pursues this mission of, I am the resurrection and the life. That's where Jesus moves. I think it's such a powerful, powerful moment in that story. The other thing that happens in the story is this line, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So, when I came to be a pastor at Pillar Church in Holland in 2003, I came to this church, a pretty stately church. Somebody said it looks like the White House. Well, not quite, but it was a building built in 1856, nine years after a group of immigrants made their way to Michigan from the Netherlands and settled there. It was the oldest building in the community. But something happened on the steps of that building in 1882. There was a split in the community when a group of people in the church rose up and decided we're not going to be a part of the Reformed Church in America anymore. That's the denomination they belong to. And they fought over about five things. They fought over whether or not you should sing psalms in worship or hymns in worship. They fought over worship music. Can you imagine? <laughs> they fought over education. Should kids go to Christian schools or is it okay to go to public schools? They fought over whether or not you should use a catechism. They fought over open and closed communion. 
Closed communion meaning you couldn't celebrate communion here if you weren't a member of this local church. And they fought over, and this was the final issue, membership in the Masonic Lodge. Some thought that membership in the Masonic Lodge was a deal breaker for membership in the church. And that group said, we can't be a part of this big denomination that says that's a, that's a bad idea, but it's okay. They permitted that, so they left. They voted to leave that denomination, to take this church out of that denomination. But the denomination wasn't so willing to let the church go, so they brought their leaders in and tried to hold this meeting. But members of the group that voted to leave stood on the steps of the church with axe handles and wouldn't let the other members of the church in. And they joined this other church called the Christian Reformed Church and separated themselves off from the community around them. So for a long time, this didn't really matter. Here's the, here's the growth cycle of the church that I pastored from 1860 to 2010. It's 50 years in the middle. That didn't make any difference that they had had this big argument. But suddenly, the college and seminary next to the church, which was associated with that other denomination, grew and bought up the property. And the church began to decline because it had said, we don't want to have anything to do with you right in our own community, you college and seminary. You're from that other denomination. And it was actually killing us that we had had that fight. That fight was such a big part of our community that it had been reported on in the late 1800s by the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune. And the minority group who had been forced out of the church, sued the church, went up to the Michigan Supreme Court, and the Michigan Supreme Court said, you're the church, aren't you supposed to figure out this stuff by yourself? We're not going to rule on this. So I'm going to quickly go through this to the ending of the story. In 2008, we began as a church to ask ourselves, is this the kind of church, is this the kind of relationship we want to have as Christian brothers and sisters? We can see that this rupture has been killing us over time, but we believe God's calling us to live a ministry of reconciliation. And so we committed ourselves to reach across the divide, to be a church that was united again as a Christian Reformed in our community and Reformed together to renew our connections with the college and seminary. And just two weeks ago, a young man from the college who had not been a Christian told a story very similar to Braden's about how he had come to faith and was baptized in our church. And today, we have sitting in our entrance to our church this ugly-looking baptismal font at the base of the font are axe handles, for it was on the steps in 1882 where people held people away with axe handles and chained the doors shut. And so our baptismal font has axe handles as its base and a chain is underneath the baptismal font and inside the waters of baptism, those waters that bring us new life, the waters that in which we go down into death with Christ and come up into new life in Jesus Christ. Jesus is relentlessly on mission to bring life in the midst of the suffering and longing and our resistance, Jesus brings life. And I hope as you come here this morning, you're able to bring your suffering, your longing, and even your resistance to Christ. 
who wants to receive us always and will get up and follow us to the places where we need him to touch us and bring us life. Let's pray together. Lord, our God, we thank you for your mercy and grace. May your word sink deep in the soil of our hearts and bring about a harvest of 10, 50, 100-fold. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.